All right, guys. We've seen Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman, the Mummy, Frankenstein, and many more. What other famous movie duo would you cast to meet the same monsters in a modern-day film series? Well, I have to say, I don't really know a lot of movie duos anymore. Um, I can only think of two, as a matter of fact. Uh, but I would like to see, I think, Harold and Kumar meet whomever. I think, <laughs> I never saw the sequels. I only ever saw Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. So I'm I'm not ruined by the fact that they could never follow up on that. So I would like to see a follow-up where they're in the horror universe. Like Harold and Kumar and the Wolfman go to Pizza Hut. <laughs> would the Wolfman want pizza? Is that... yes. Yes. Probably not. There's garlic and shit, right? <laughs> that's that's Dracula, you dummy. That's not Wolfman. Yeah, I know that, but <laughs> look, I know that, but he probably doesn't like it either. I'm just saying they're they're associated. Yeah, they're on the same. <laughs> Can't be eating garlic pizza and then go kiss Drac. You know what I'm saying? Don't, whoa, whoa, whoa! Are we shipping werewolf and Drac together? Is that what's happened here? Oh, big time! Aren't they a combo package? Yeah. <laughs> I assume Wolfman would want to go to like uh, Franklin's Barbecue or something like that. <laughs> the Sizzler. If he went to Franklin's, <laughs> he would cut in line. You know he would. Well, yeah, he's the Wolfman. He hasn't got time for this shit. He's, I mean, the moon's only going to be out for so long. So <laughs> that's that's a t-shirt right there. I'm Wolfman. I ain't got time for this shit. Uh, John, I'm kind of with you. I was like, well, let me look up and see what kind of famous duos we got rattling around you know because my duo knowledge is probably as old as abbott and costello so i'm thinking of things like heckle and jekyll that's some old ass shit who remembers those animated crows you know what i'm saying so uh went over to uh google and typed in uh, famous duos and came up with a couple like i don't think there is a mary kate and ashley olsen meets the wolfman oh. <laughs> i'm not super familiar with that franchise but i feel like they deserve a couple of horrors okay wow now um did come to mind without before i went to google i thought of beavis and butthead and i thought that would might be a little fun like beavis and butthead and frankenstein i bet frankenstein laughs more like butthead myself <laughs> that might be entertaining i would love that especially if parts of the movie they actually cut to beavis and butthead watching the old abbott and costello movies and like riffing on top of them like they did the music videos that would be genius yeah that'd be awesome uh viacom get on that <laughs> yeah for real now but what i settled on is my favorite duo in this google list of famous duos i'm gonna go with mac and cheese now hear me out fellas wolfman gets to star his own cooking show or guest star you know it'll just be these monsters eating mac and cheese sponsored by Kraft. i think you've lost it mark yeah <laughs> have you seen abbott and costello i just wanted do we have a reference i don't think mac and cheese could pull it off oh uh, you don't think cheese would hold its weight or would it be mac that was dropping the ball i mean cheese always holds its weight you're not gonna hear me badmouth cheese on this podcast but mac i mean mac can cut i could take it or leave it <laughs> It's just cheese and cheese, please. Crafts cheese and cheese. Uh, no, that's not how the duo works, John. I guess I watch more cooking shows than you fellas do. I have just watched all the Top Chefs, Sugar Rushes, the f Nailed It's, like all that crap pops up. And I don't know. I'd like to eat, I guess, is what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> Who's the, the straight man in the mac and cheese combo? Mac. Definitely Mac. Yeah, I would have agreed. Yeah. All right. Well, you don't like my idea. Garrett, what do you got? No, it's not that I don't like your idea. I just don't know how well it's going to hold its own for an hour and 30 minutes. Oh, it's not a full length production. This will be a series. It'll be a monster eats mac and cheese, uh, you know, like a, a 12 count episode on Netflix or uh, the cooking 
channel. Oh, uh, only if Gordon Ramsay comes in as a special guest and basically yells that you're a fucking donkey to the Wolfman. <laughs> I'd love it. Okay. What do you got? It was a little bit tougher for me because I could think of multiple duos throughout film history that I'd love to see meet some of these famous monsters. But at the end of the day, I almost landed on Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy from 48 Hours and was like, you know what? I'd like to see those guys meet some horror icons. But I stopped myself and I was like, Garrett, is that really true to your nature? Is that really what you'd want to watch for an hour and 30 minutes multiple times with different monsters? And I said, no, my duo would be Zed and Sweet Chuck from Police Academy, Bobcat Goldwaite, I can't remember the little nerdy guy's name, but I would love to see those two meet the famous monsters because I think that dynamic and that duo, that's got entertainment written all over it. Yeah, I mean, I think Bobcat with anybody would be pretty entertaining. Uh, I'm sorry, Garrett, I don't remember the other guy. It's been so long since I've seen the Police Academies. Other than Mahoney, I don't remember the other characters. Oh, uh, Two Tower, Tall Tower, High Tower. There it is. <laughs> it took a minute it's in there but it's in the back you know behind all my uh, uh receipts and uh you know all the cooking shows it, the police academy's buried uh in a drawer back there <laughs> as as it should be in most cases <laughs> i don't know i just i think that that would be fun i, I was thinking for characters that would be because because admin costello had a very unique style to them an interaction that could actually play off itself without having to any kind have any kind of like external um, device to kind of like push that plot along. So I was trying to think of characters that I think could like do the same thing uh, in case we didn't have the uh, the monster on the screen at all times. So I had to go with something that meant a lot to me. And unfortunately, Police Academy was it. <laughs> I, I have to say to our audience, if y'all have not seen Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman or any of these, go watch them. They are, what, 60 years old now, but they're still hilarious. I probably, my, when I was growing up, my family had a tape of Abner Costello meet the Wolfman. I think that was my introduction to Universal Monsters. I watched that tape like 5 million times. I could probably quote it. Uh, what an, such a great, great, hilarious movie. Yeah, definitely recommend probably the first round of comedy horrors, would you say? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Cool. We'll get out there and watch it, and let's go ahead and get into today's episode. Hey, all you creatures from cyberspace. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Grave Talk Podcast. My name is Mark. Again, joined with Garrett and John. Fellas, how are we doing today? Is life returning back to normal after the snowpocalypse Texas went through? Well, unfortunately, I just used a Bismarcky Yo! MTV Raps card as a toothpick because I couldn't find my dental floss. So I'm making all sorts of poor life choices right now. So I, I'm not the one to ask on that. My life has uh, returned more back to normal than that, so uh, I guess it's all relative. <laughs> Garrett, I got some dental floss if you need it. Just holler, and I'll come by and drop it off. I've got some. I just don't know where it is right now. So <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, what have you guys been up to since the last time? It's been a minute. Yeah, we lost a, a couple weeks there. We couldn't get an episode out, so apologies to the listeners, uh, but thanks for sticking with us while we got our shit together after the power grid went down. Yeah, that was wild. Um what have I been? I watched a ton of movies uh, since we've last talked, and I, I won't 
put everyone through my reviews of all of them. You can go look on Letterboxd. But there are two that I want to shout out that I watched uh, just last night, actually. Uh, one, and Mark, you probably know about this one. Uh, I watch The Devils because Shudder has been pimping that on their Twitter account like nonstop. It's all right. It's really strange. Yeah, I put it in the queue, but I haven't seen it yet. It's a strange film. Uh, I Garrett, I don't think you would consider it a horror film. Lots of nudity. Is this the one from 1971 or is this a new one? No, it's from 1971. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but it was a good film. I mean, I liked it. I didn't really, un- I mean, I understood it. I just didn't, it's not a horror movie. It's just a weird 70s movie. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I saw a new movie that was recently released called The Vigil. It is about a Jewish person who has to perform a vigil over someone's dead body and it gets like totally crazy. Uh, and that movie was amazing. Highly recommend folks go watch it. Uh, I watched it on iTunes, uh, so it's pretty expensive, but it's worth every penny. It was a really good, super scary movie. It is directed by Keith Thomas, who I don't know, directed and written by. Let's see, IMDb says... This was it. This was his first movie. Holy shit. Way to go, Keith. Uh, He hit a home run right out the gate. Nice. What is the general plot? Is it uh, it supernatural? Is it like a haunted house? Like, what are we talking here? I mean, don't give it away, but what what are we looking at if we go watch it? I'll read the synopsis on Letterboxd. Uh, A man providing overnight watch to a deceased member of his former Orthodox Jewish community finds himself opposite a malevolent entity. Uh, So it's basically guy versus demon it's very atmospheric like a i mean it's like a ultimately like a haunted house type movie but yeah i I don't want to give too much away but it's it's awesome kind of like that movie last shift that we watched yes it is like that yeah that's a good one uh so it's in that vein of film uh, a little bit more low-key than that and it, it it's very small you really like follow one individual i mean i think in total there's probably like 10 characters and only three of them are of any importance. So it's it's it's, it's a very small film, but it works really well. Cool. Want we'll to check that one out. Uh, I finally got around to watching 1990s Nightbreed <laughs> by Clive Barker. Um, I uh, don't know why I hadn't seen this one before. Boy, is it a lot of fun. If I had to describe it, I would say it is the adult version of Fred Savage's Little Monsters. Wow! Baseball cards! I love baseball cards! Got them, got them, need them, got them, got them, got them, need them, got them, need them, need them, got them, got them, got them, got them, need them! Just as fun with the character creations and all the demons and everything like that. What a crazy movie that is, Nightbreed. Uh, I assume everybody here and everybody listening have probably seen it. I'm just late to the party. Late to the Nightbreed. When you texted me that, you're like, have you guys seen Nightbreed? I was like, oh, no. Is this Mark's first time? Like, because that movie is fucking bananas. Um, I was so excited to see what you thought because I was like, he's gonna, he's not going to know what the fuck to do with this. It's ridiculous. It's a lot of fun. It's on Shudder. So if you haven't seen it like me, I highly recommend going and checking out Nightbreed. It's a, it's a good time. I haven't really done a whole lot. Um, I've been waiting to watch Willy's Wonderland with Nicolas Cage. Um, I still am not quite on that whole rent it for 20 bucks and then have to rebuy it later thing. So I, <laughs> I've been holding off on doing that. Um, I don't know. I just I feel like, you know, just give me the option to buy it for 30 right now. Don't make me rent it for 20, wait four months, and then have to spend full price again to get it. Pandemic times, man. Different different market. Stop trying to cling to the old ways. Um, 
But so I, I that's in my queue. I'm really excited to watch that. I know some of our listeners have listened or seen that. Um, I'm I'm excited to dig into it. I started watching that uh, that show Clarice, the Silence of the Lambs TV show. Oh yeah, how's that? Eh, I mean, it's not bad. It's not bad TV. Um, I don't know if I'm gonna recommend it just yet. I will just say that I'm watching it. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's it's got potential. But I also, you know, I love a good backstory, but this just seems to be very TV formulaic in its own sense. So I've been a little less um, judgmental on TV shows until I get a little further in, um, especially after like WandaVision and um, uh, Lovecraft Country. I, I like to give them a little bit more time to breathe, but this one, I don't know. It doesn't have me hooked just yet. Did you uh, watch Hannibal? No, I didn't watch the TV show. Uh, a lot of people like really rave about it, though. They really like it. But again, I'm a hard sell on TV shows. I just I prefer a movie to it to a show. But um, by all accounts, it's really good. Same. I'm not a big TV person, but uh, I've heard good things about that show. So you fly back to school now, little starting. Fly, fly, fly. All right. Well, unless you guys have anything else, let's get into today's movie, which is Sinister from 2012. This was a listener recommendation. This came to us from Instagram by user Alyssa Bean, along with a link. Apparently in late 2020, a group called Broadband Choices, funded by Forbes, did a scientific study to find out what is the most scariest movie of all time, Sinister One. And Alyssa said she was strong enough to make it through. There was a couple of jump scares, but she wanted to know what we thought of this being crowned by science as the scariest movie of all time. Now, I've got a little data here, so I can break it down on why this movie is scientifically the scariest movie of all time. Out of 50 people that they were uh, doing the study with, they had them watch 120 hours of horror, and they hooked them up to machines and were reading their heart rate, the BPM, and the highest spike. With all that information combined, Sinister won it out. Interestingly enough, that did not win the highest spike across all the movies. That title goes to Insidious, the same company, but that one got the highest heart rate spike. And I'm, I really wish they would tell us what part of the movie it was that made people jump so much. I think that would be interesting to know. It was the Tiny Tim song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tiptoe through the garden. Okay, that's it. Man, you are I, you better start a Tiny Tim cover band, Garrett. You were perfect at that. Did, yeah, was that a recording? <laughs> Send me a ukulele and a wig and I'm all over it, people. <laughs> um, so what do you guys think of this? Uh, Sinister, scariest movie of all time, according to science. So I have a question you might not know the answer to, but I think it's very important for their scientific study. Did they randomize the order that the participants saw these movies in? Because there is, I think, a real element of uh, horror numbness, right? If you're watching 120 hours of horror, the movie you see as number one is probably going to seem scarier than the movie you see at number 10 because you're just like, oh, all right, this is uh, like I'm over it. So I, I wonder if, if that was taken into account. Hmm. That is a great damn question, John, because I thought the same thing because just from doing the the, the podcast alone, I don't get me wrong. I'm going to tell you a few anecdotes about watching this movie today. I still get scared by this stuff, but I am much less intimidated and my heart rate doesn't like get like off the charts quite as much now that I've like seen so much horror. 
But uh, that's a great question. And also, um, what was the age group? You know, different people find different things scary. I know older people would probably find The Exorcist a lot more scary than we would nowadays, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wish I could find some of these details. Unfortunately, if you go to broadbandchoices.co.uk, it doesn't really dive into how they did it. I would hope... Uh, at least for fair, fairness sake, that they wouldn't have shown them back to back like that. You're going to get a, a fatigue at some point. Um, I'm hoping they did it over a course of maybe several weeks, right? Sit down and watch this tonight. Sit down and watch this tomorrow. Uh, but I can't confirm nor deny their scientific method here. Sure. Were they in a theater? Were they at home with their cell phones? I mean, that's another thing that also I find that people who dick around their phones like that definitely changes the tone of a film. All I got here is it says that the, each individual watched the movie in 5.1 surround sound fitted with a heart rate monitor to measure which movie got their blood pumping. So, uh, yeah, we might have to mail in a request to review their data. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, we're going to independently verify your shit here. Yeah. Get me that spreadsheet. And then point two, my second thought is I legitimately always confuse sinister and insidious i get the if, in my mind those two movies are the same movie even though they are fairly different in plotting i can't i can't separate them and i don't know why those movies could not be more different john i know like i i'm thinking about both of them and i'm just like there's like a different feel a different context i mean but i maybe it's just the single word title yeah Maybe they're going to run out of their thesaurus words pretty soon. Hurry up, Bloomhouse. Think of some new things to call your movies. Has there been a horror movie just called Scary yet? <laughs> Somebody get on that. <laughs> Here's the movies that came in uh, after uh, Sinister for the scariest movie. Uh, number two, Insidious. Number three, The Conjuring. Number four, Hereditary. Number five, Paranormal Activity. Number six, It Follows. Number seven, Conjuring 2, number 8, The Babadook, number 9, The Descent, and number 10, The Visit. So I'm not terribly surprised by their list. I think those all are fairly legitimately scary movies, uh, except The Babadook. I actually turned that movie off. I know I'm weird. I did not get into that one. I mean, I agree with you on Babadook, but Paranormal Activity, that ranked that high? I don't... Oh, man. Okay, I assume their blood pressure was was rising because they were getting mad at uh, uh, Mika. (laughs) Mika. Uh, (laughs) Good point. But... Another notable thing about this list is they're all like 2000s movies. Yeah, that's immediately what struck me on this list. Now, uh, there's a list of 50, right? So I can look through and see that there are some other ones. Like Nightmare on Elm Street is number 13. Halloween is 14. Texas Chainsaw is 15. Uh, the Exorcist, surprisingly enough, comes in at 17. So the back of the box guys got some uh, updating to do, it, based on science anyway. Could you imagine seeing... The scariest movie since Sinister being used seriously. (laughs) Could you imagine basically like writing The Exorcist and then being like Paranormal Activity? We got beat by Paranormal Activity. (laughs) Now, here's the nitpick on this science that I'm going to throw out there, guys. Like just an example, right? Number 24 is the original Alien. Okay, so what do we know about Alien? That's a slow burn. That's all about atmosphere. If you've got a heart monitor hooked up to you, you're really just going to gauge jump scares, loud bangs, and all the bullshit that we get tired of in these horror movies. True. You know what I mean? Like, So I don't think this study is very scientific. I think, oh, we can tell when your heartbeat goes up. Okay, you got it. Which one has the most like 
blood pressure changing events in one movie, then Sinister wins. You know what I'm saying? I think we're asking a lot of this website, though, to really sign. We need you got to be much more vigorous in your science. (laughs) While there are some definite questions and some definite choices that um, that we've we've talked about here and just kind of, you know, come to mind in general. I, I think this also might be indicative of years of being able to perfect the art. I do feel that more modern horror movies are scarier than the ones uh, that came out earlier on. That doesn't mean there's not some like terrifying older horror films because um, there definitely are. But I think we've we've been able to hone the craft to a point where we are able to, I don't want to say manipulate the audience, but in a way manipulate the audience to to kind of control their experience better. Um, the the concept of the exorcist was terrifying back then. Uh, nowadays, it's less so because we've been inundated with so much. You know, the idea of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, was horrifying. And But like we, we, we did an episode on the movie and we didn't really find it that scary. I mean, it was definitely messed up. But I think this is just a natural evolution of uh, horror filmmakers just getting better at what they do and knowing what the audience legitimately responds to. And to that note, I'm going to go on record and say this is while Sinister is not the scariest movie I've ever seen, in my opinion, this definitely is in my top five um, of scariest films. This movie scared the shit out of me. And every time I watch it, it scares the shit out of me. In fact, I was watching it on my iPad at one point because I had to do some dishes and the, 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 the room was just bright enough to where when the scene changed and the screen went dark, I saw my reflection in the iPad. I legitimately jumped. <laughs> um, so I scared the shit out of myself because the movie just had me on edge the whole time. And Bloomhouse, Cargill, you know, the writers on this did a such an amazing job of keeping that tension high throughout the entire film. I, I legitimately like felt tight and tense when it ended because I was just like, oh, wow, like this just had me on edge the whole time. So there's something to this study. I definitely think all the questions we've had are valid questions as far as the the true like buck stops here validity of it. But I think it's a fun little experiment. Well, let's go around the room real quick before we jump deep into the movie. Uh, let's go ahead and say, looking at the science or the scientific data as presented at face value, do you agree, Sinister, scariest movie all time? And, and if not, which one is? Uh, no. Now, I agree with Garrett. This is a scary movie, and I don't want to be, uh, to have my nose seem like I think this is a bad movie. Uh, spoiler for the end of our podcast. I like this movie. I, it's a good horror movie. Scariest movie of all time? That's a tough one, but I don't know if you could even do that. I don't know that I could pick one scariest movie, but here's what I'd say. Of the, that top three, I think Conjuring is scarier than this movie. Uh, in fact, when I think of like what's a scary scene, I think of that clap game from Conjuring. Uh, so, like to me, <laughs> of that list, like in that top five or ten that you mentioned, Conjuring is more scary than Insidious. Okay, John, you just said that clap scene over the internet to me while we're recording a podcast, and all the hairs on my arms are sticking straight up right now. Like just the mention of that, like. It, you know, you get that tingle in your body when your hair stand up too fast. Like I have that. Like I would have to. I would have to sort of. Oh man, that's tough. Cause I, man, this is a thinker. I would definitely say Conjuring is overall the scarier concept and the scarier um, uh, storyline for me. I would say Sinister has better jump scares and much 
better tension um, as keeping the tension like high the entire time. But I'm going to say something super controversial. I kind of think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake was one of the scariest horror films I've ever seen. I would put it in my top three, if not at the number one slot. That movie was fucking scary the entire time, and it's so intense. I just rewatched that movie, like, I don't know, maybe a week ago, and I agree, Gary. It holds up so well. What a great remake. And yeah, that one's pretty intense, too. Uh, I goes a little long, but man, great movie. Well, for me, I don't think Sinister is the scariest movie I ever saw. Uh, it, there was a couple jump scares that got me, but I thought a lot of them. I, you know, basically, we've been doing this for a long time now, so I kind of know when they're going to pop up and do the things. But, uh, you know, if I had to pick the one that I thought was the scariest, based on my uh, experiences here on planet Earth, the scariest movie to me that actually fucked me up was a 1970s Christian movie called The Thief in the Night, where the rapture happens, all the Christians go to heaven, and those who are unfortunate left on planet Earth who still have faith are left to the One World Order, New World Order, I guess, to be precise, and they're going to come around and chop off your heads with guillotines, and it's going to be a real fucking terrible time. That ruined me as a child to any point that I didn't see my parents where I thought they should be. I thought the rapture happened. <laughs> and let me tell you what's fucking scary. It's when you think your parents get vanished off the face of the planet. That's some scary shit. Wow. That's <laughs> that's so terrifying to think about as a kid. I feel like your mom's not in the room where you left her. It's just like, oh, God, yeah. the rapture. For years, dude. And even when I got older, it was like, that's stupid. It still popped in the back of my head. as like, is it finally happening? <laughs> nope. Oh, there she is. She's over in aisle five now instead of over in aisle 11 in the grocery store. Poor uh, kid Mark already so much guilt. You were for sure that you weren't getting raptured. <laughs> Look, I didn't always play by the handbook. You know what I'm saying? Like I uh, I had some things that probably wouldn't have gotten me in right away. I probably would have to go over to layaway for a while. Was it purgatory? That's where I'd end up for a bit. Purgatory, yeah. I do want Mark's superpower of being able to not be as scared by these movies anymore because while I am more inundated with horror now and i kind of know what to expect i still get terrified every fucking time there's an actually like legit scary movie <laughs> i i would love to not have to warn people who sit next to me of like you need to move at least arms length away because if i jump i cannot control where my elbows go <laughs> <laughs> well this leads me into a point i have today garrett so you started off this podcast with us not liking horror at all and over the course of our, what is it, three years now of doing this thing, I think we can tell that you have become more, as you said earlier, you're more comfortable watching these things. You said you still get terrors. Now, one of the characters in this movie has night terrors. And I think you at one point told me, is that something you experienced? Did that ratchet up the tension for you watching someone go through this yes um i i had a it wasn't as near as like bad as like full-on like legitimate like night terrors but i would have nightmares that were so realistic that i would get up and run away from a thing that like i wasn't quite back in reality for i was told that it was a form of night terror um i don't know the scientific deep dive into it but yes when that shit happens in movies it freaks me out because to this point like i still get sleep paralysis uh, from bad dreams. Um, I will get up and find myself like I'll wake up and find myself sometimes after like a really scary nightmare, like kind of sitting up and leaning against the wall. It's not near as common as it used to be when I was younger, but occasionally it'll still happen. And holy shit, it just it messes with me so much. So whenever I see a character with like legit night terrors in a movie, it, it always fucks with me. I'm just like, oh, come here. Let me give you a hug. 
I sort of feel you, dog. Like, oh man, it's so rough. There's also a um, a really interesting Wes Craven movie called They, uh, which is basically about um, the origin of night terrors, where a night terror is actually just demons and monsters like marking you as children, and then they come back to get you later on. That one fucked me up pretty good too. <laughs> so, or you've probably already heard this as someone who suffers from sleep paralysis. But one of the occult reasons is that it's a demon sitting on your chest, just inhaling your breath. So there's something to think about. Are you fucking kidding me? Those damn demons. Get off my chest. So that's sleep paralysis there. Yeah, they're crouching or sitting on you, just sort of inhaling your your humanness. I've never wanted to hear that in my life, John. Fuck <laughs> you, dude. <laughs> I legitimately had a sleep paralysis dream like three weeks ago. <laughs> so to hear that, just like... Oh, God, I did not need to know that. Sorry. (laughs) Dude, sleep paralysis fucks with you good. That shit is frightening as hell. I've had that a couple times where your brain wakes up, but your body doesn't. And you're like, I can't move. Holy crap. But yeah, I mean, as you said, Mark, um, at the start of this and and, and throughout the, the podcast history, as our longtime listeners will know, I've come to learn that it wasn't that I hated horror. It's just I hated the idea of being legitimately scared because there was some fun 80s horror movies that like evidently I, I remember and I watched and I had fond memories of. Um, it's the stuff like Sinister and The Conjuring, Insidious, you know, like The Exorcist, things that really deal with like the ethereal, um, like, you know, unseen demons, the the dark nature, of you know, like that kind of stuff. I, I avoided it because I just didn't handle it well. And to be fair, I handle it better now, but I still have issues with it. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a really interesting dream. I thought about writing about it just because I find myself seeing trailers for films that I know would scare the ever-living fuck out of me. Uh, there was one called Lights Out. I don't know if that movie's any good, but the trailer alone, I, I immediately saw the trailer. I turned on every light in my house. Wouldn't turn them off for a while. Like I just was not comfortable <laughs> with the lights out in my house. I, I found myself now, like in the past, I would have avoided that shit like the plague. Now I find myself kind of like more like, all right, let's let's push these limits. Let's see what we can what we can deal with here. Um, so I'd say that's the biggest transformation of me during this uh, this podcast is like I want to I want to get in the water, but I'm also really terrified it's going to be freezing. You know, that'd be interesting if you do decide to write about that. Um, I've got some friends and, and one of them is I got some friends. Can you believe it? People like me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a friend who uh, can't believe that anybody would want to sit through and get scared and watch this stuff. And he also has nightmares, too. So maybe if you do write about it, Garrett, that'd be interesting to see what your findings are and maybe explain to someone like him why you decide that you enjoy doing this, you know? That could be cool. Does does that person like roller coasters or are they anti-roller coasters too? Mm, good question. I should find that out, but I don't know. Yeah. And I agree, Garrett. That would be super interesting. Uh, I will say Lights Out, not the best movie. Interesting thing about that though is it became a movie off of a YouTube short, or I guess it was a, a it was a submitted to a film festival, but then got famous off of YouTube. Led to the person to create to get a contract to make the movie, and then that director went on to direct Shazam, which was gangster. So there's an interesting career path. Oh, nice. Yeah, Shazam was good. Very good. Okay, well let's talk about Sinister. So this one was directed by Scott Derrickson. Uh, written along with C. Cargill, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, C. Robert Cargill. And looking through Scott Derrickson's IMDb, 
he has gone on to do quite a few things, and he's uh, up to do the Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Is that correct? Uh, he was. He was. He was doing that. I don't know all the details, but I I believe they left that project for something else. Okay. Uh, he did do the uh, original, though, right? Yes. This is our second Scott movie, right? Didn't he do that bad? And <laughs> not his fault, maybe. But the the Hellraiser movie we did a while back. Yes. Yeah, my man Scott has had quite the glow up. He from Hellraiser Inferno to Doctor Strange. That's uh that. That's a career. There's his uh, autobiography title. Yeah. Well, he also did Exorcism of Emily Rose, right? We did that one on the podcast as well. That was one of the first exorcism ones I saw outside of The Exorcist, obviously. Yeah, that one was pretty good. I've never seen... And he did The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, I watched that one. Not a bad movie. It was one of those remakes, though. I was like, you. there's no reason for this to exist. Uh, but it was competently done. Agreed. And let's see, see Robert Cargill. I know that name has been mentioned several times. He's involved with the Doctor Strange property too, right? Yes, correct. He was one of the writers. Him and Scott Derrickson were um, writers for the original Doctor Strange. He also writes a lot of novels. He has a, a handful of novels under his belt. Um, I believe like one's Day Zero and uh, Sea of Rust. They're, they're pretty good. I'd recommend checking out his books if you like these stories. Okay. So in this one, we've got Ethan Hawke as Ellison Oswalt, Juliet Rylance as Tracy, Fred Thompson as the sheriff, James Ransoni as deputy uh, so-and-so. Uh, we got Michael Hall D'Adrio as Trevor and Claire Foley as Ashley. Where do I know James Ransoni from, Garrett? He was in um, the It remakes. Uh, he was the adult uh, version of... Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. Eddie. Yes, Eddie. And uh, he was also in The Wire. Um, he was in season two of The Wire. He was um, the uh, the dude who had the uh, the duck that he fed uh, alcohol to. Anyway, you know James Ransoni. He's he's been in some stuff. He's been in some solid stuff and everything he does, he's he's fantastic in. Very good. Yeah, while watching the movie, I just kept looking at him. I was like, dude, where do I know you from? I'm going to look that up later. And I forgot, so. <laughs> <laughs> he's been in a lot of things. Yeah, for sure. All right, here's what the back of the DVD has to say about Sinister. Ten years ago, true crime writer Ellison Oswalt made his reputation with a best-selling account of a notorious murder. Now, desperate to replicate the success of his first book, he moves his family into a home where the previous occupants were brutally executed and a child disappeared. Hoping to find inspiration in the crime scene, in the home, Ellison discovers a cache of terrifying home movies, unwittingly opening the door into a nightmarish mystery. And I think that's a pretty good back of the box as far as, uh, you know, our our uh, our ratios go. Almost kind of undersells it a little bit. Yeah. Kind of understated for this type of movie. Uh, no unspeakables, no uh, scariest movies ever, anything like that. So well done. That's true. I agree with that. Good work, back of the box. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. This one's sitting at a 63% out of the uh, tomato meter, uh, 154 critics. And 61% audience score out of 50,000 plus reviews. That seems like maybe that should be a little bit higher, especially based on our study earlier. But uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, that's surprising. I mean, the critics review. All right. Fair enough. Uh, I think that it suffers from being sort of mainstream horror and critics always shit all over that. But I thought the audience score would be higher. 
I agree. Uh, so this one was shot on a budget of $3 million and brought in 87.7 at the box office. So it did wow. good enough. Yeah. Enough to warrant a sequel, at least from in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Oof. I don't know if y'all have seen the sequel, but avoid. Oh, really? Is it, is it not good? That bad, huh? It is really, really bad, y'all. It is... Uh, it's like everything about Sinister, except imagine it worse, like by like 75%, like 75% less competent. Hmm. Uh, yeah. As far as I know, the only character who returns, if I remember right, is Deputy So-and-so. Everyone else, gone. Well, Sinister is a, what is it? This is like a, um, this is a supernatural film kind of mixed in with a true crime slash th- thriller mystery story, right? When I started watching this, I was getting flashes of The Ring, but where I think they differ mostly is I think The Ring really leaned into the mystery side of it, whereas on the reverse, I think this one leans more into the pagan supernatural element more than the mystery. You know what's funny about that um, is I, I, we actually got to we got invited to a, a special screening of this uh, this film when it first came out. And uh, Cargill was actually answering some questions. And uh, one of the trivia pieces that's actually kind of like made the rounds is um, he uh, Cargo got the idea from the script from a nightmare he had after watching The Ring. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess it's good that I uh, conjured up images of that then. That uh, makes total sense. Well, what do you guys think of this movie? Uh, other than it uh, maybe not being the scariest thing, it sounds like we all generally think it's pretty good. Yeah, I like this movie. Uh, when I, you know, when we decided to do it, I was like, sweet, I get to watch Sinister again. I think it is scary. I personally, I think what uh, like really hits for me are all those home v- movies, like the home movies aspect of it. Uh, those are hard to watch. They are so well done. They seem like legit snuff films. Um, so like, and it opens with one of those and it's like just so hard to, to look at and it goes on for an uncomfortably long time. So that works really well. And they're sporadic enough that you don't ever really get sick of them. So, uh, well done. Yeah. It's a really bold opening. Yeah. And let's get into it. Let's, uh, I, I want to get into more of this super eight business, but that's exactly how the movie starts. Uh, yeah. So it starts the first like non credit scene of the movie is this family just hanging from a tree. Like Mark said, it's shot in the Super 8 style, so it's got a real vintage look to it. And they have hoods on the, uh, on, and they're you know being hung from a tree with a rope. And you just watch them. Like their feet is kicking. Uh, the camera is like on a tripod or whatever, so it doesn't move. And you just watch these people die. It's pretty intense and a bold way to open a mainstream horror film john's absolutely right what we see is we see a family standing on the ground with nooses around their neck tied to a tree and then out of nowhere another branch on the tree breaks off and then slowly lifts them up and you watch them legitimately in real time just die and there's nothing to indicate how that branch broke there's nothing to indicate why Mm. this is set up you legitimately watch this supernatural like hanging of a family and it is so unnerving. There's no dialogue. There's no setup. It's just, hey, watch this snuff film. Welcome to our movie. And you're just like, holy shit. Yeah. Like the only audio is the sound of like the Super 8 projector. Uh, So it makes it really creepy. Uh, And I can see why a lot of people be like, you know what? Never mind. This movie isn't for me. Because uh, it's pretty, it's a pretty intense opening. Uh, and then though, it cuts, talk about sort of whiplash, because it cuts from that to your generic family moving into a new house. 
Uh, so it starts, you, you're, they're unpacking their, their car and you get to meet the mom, the dad, the two kids. Uh, the, this part is all very paint by numbers. You know, I think if there's anything the horror genre could teach suburbanites and, and Americans of, uh, of all faiths and walks of life is that you should never move. <laughs> Just stay put. <laughs> you're going to die. <laughs> yeah, this movie has one of the biggest examples of... Um, like, I, I really applaud this movie for doing two things. One, making me write down, why the fuck would you ever do this, you dummy? More times in my notes than almost any other movie. But then also being so good at explaining a fair bit of it that I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, this movie did a really good job of, like, justifying all the really dumb decisions that horror characters make that we always, like, want to criticize. Because we're like, why would you ever do that? And you're like, okay. I get it. Let's go. Let's see what you got. Yeah. Let's talk about Ethan's character real quick. Ellison, who's a writer who got some really big success right out the gate with a book called like Bloody uh, Oars or, or Brings or something like that. Kentucky Blood. Blood. Yeah. Bloody Oars. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said oars like rowboat, not whores. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that bloody pit of horror. Yeah, Bloody Horrors is going to be a movie written by Danzig of the Misfits. That's coming soon. No, I don't know. <laughs> the uh, The character of Ellison, he is unfortunately a character that is chasing success. And while he wants to put out an outward appearance of doing this for the good of it, as the movie progresses, you watch him break down and really show his true colors. Like he just wants the fame and glory and he justifies it left and right about this is for the family. This is for the victims. But no, it's 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 for him. He needs to be famous and back on top again. Now, do you think uh, because Allison is one of my least favorite characters of all time and I think that he is up there with Mika in the pantheon of bad husbands. And we'll, we'll get through, uh, I think we'll get to some of his greatest hits as we discuss the movie. But do y'all... At this rate, you're going to knock Ike Turner off the list. <laughs> oh. uh, uh, do y'all think that he was being influenced, sort of shining style, to be more terrible because of the nature of this house and Bagul? Absolutely not. Okay, so he's just a tool. Yeah, because at the outset of the movie and what Garrett was kind of tiptoeing around, Ethan's character, Ellison, has moved his family into a house where the hanging that happened on the Super 8 film took place. Yeah. He moved his family into a crime scene. You don't get influenced to do that. He's yet to be introduced to the pagan elements of this film. This was all on his own. He decided to do it. He sucks. Fair point. And what makes it so much worse. Uh, okay, so the movie opens, some cops come, and he goes and talks to the sheriff. And the sheriff's like, I find all this very distasteful. And that's when we find out that he moved into the house, like Mark said. He goes back to talk to his wife. And his wife's like... Hey, what was all that about? You know, uh, tell me that you didn't move us a couple of houses down from where the murders happened. And he goes, nope, I promise you, I didn't move a couple of houses down from where the murder has happens uh, because he's fucking Mr. Technicality. That's instant divorce. Whoa, 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 he whoa, is whoa. Mr. Technicality. Whoa. Let's let's actually point something out here, though. Um Yes, why 100%. He goes, uh, the, the sheriff is played by uh, Fred Thompson from Law & Order fame. Also, he was a senator at one point. Um, 
Fred Thompson does a great job in this. Uh, but yeah, he's the the sheriff of this this small town. But yes, when he goes back to to talk to his wife, she's like making friends, and he's like, not really. And she's like, don't tell us you moved us into a house close by where the murders happened. And then she, before he has a chance to answer, she goes, wait, no, don't tell me. And he's like, well, do you want to know or do you want not want to know? And she's like, I don't want to know. Now, this is something that people do in life sometimes that I'm always just like, really like, oh no, you, you all, you obviously want to know, like (laughs) you should, you should want to know this. Yeah. She specifically tells him not to tell her and then he does it. Now, granted, he is a fucking prick for doing this, but he does get off on this one instance on the technicality that she says, don't tell me. No, because he could have just said nothing. (laughs) She goes, you know what? Don't tell me. But instead of just dropping it, after she says that, he goes, I promise. Oh, yeah. I did not move you a couple of houses down from a murder scene. Okay, yes. An unnecessary dick move. Yeah, I, I cannot forgive him for that. He's he's guilty as charged. I'm sorry, Garrett. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he takes he takes his out and then blows it out of the water by basically being like, you're right. I'm not going to lie to you. But here's a lie. <laughs> it's like, no, bro. How long did he think did he this lie was going to be able to continue? His kids are going to go to the school. His wife is going to live in this community. He, I mean, there's no way that this was going to be able to be a secret. So he just lied like for fun. He's like, you know what? I want to argue about this later. Uh, yeah. I can't understand. Some guy who apparently can go find evidence and clues that the cops miss in all these fucking cold cases. He sure fucking missed that one. Right. I mean, come on, dude. And not only that, the cops are like there, like four of them are there when he goes and talks to um, the sheriff. But one thing that also gets me about this place, and I don't expect the, the wife to know this, but like there's still evidence in the attic. There's still the broken tree branch where that family was hung in the backyard, just still hanging from the tree. It's like (laughs) the cop, like he must have like, they died, they did their study. And then like the next day he was like sold. (laughs) Like they, they did not clean this place up for shit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely fucking right. The fucking tree that killed the family is still on the branch is still on the ground in the backyard. They didn't even clean yet. Like the crime tape is probably still up around the fence. (laughs) The nooses are still on the tree. The wife wasn't like, what's with that broken branch? Should we cut that branch down? That's really weird. Uh, She has no questions. Now, the evidence, the evidence I'm going to give a pass on. Yes. I think Bagul hid the evidence and then made it appear. I don't think that they left that just sitting in the attic. The tree branch though, yeah, it's like, come on. But they would have cleaned that branch up. And day one, when his son comes home from school, he's already drawing the dead family on the chalkboard at school. It's like, bro, you didn't even make it 24 hours before your family found out what's going on, or at least one of the members. That's after the son has the night terror. And I think at that point, that's Bagul's like um, influence, honestly. I don't even know if the kids told him that. Yeah. And let me just say real quick before we move on from it, Garrett, is that if he had moved into the house by himself totally permissible. Mm -hmm. I don't care if he was by himself, but he brought his family with him and that's a fuck up. You don't do that. Yes. He lies to his wife. Mistake number one. Well, mistake number two. Mistake number one was basically moving into a murder house. Wait, 
holy shit, mistake number zero. Did he buy this house without showing it to his wife? Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Did she not come to the with the real estate agent? Because, I mean, the agent would have probably been like, uh, some bad shit happened here. Oh. He just surprise bought this house from what I, my headcanon is. He bought this house and was like, family, we're moving. Yeah, you're, a, you're absolutely right. And, and not to mention that they own two houses at that point because they keep talking about how they have two mortgages out. Why didn't he leave his family in that house until it sold? He could have come done all this on his own. Oh, my God. That's true. This guy's terrible. Now, he does mention some point in the movie that like they could not afford the old place anymore and, and they don't have money. And this this plays all into the whole he wants the fame. He wants the money. He because his old house was like what you would expect, like a Stephen King or an Alan Moore to move into, you know, like the first seclusion. It's like this fancy, huge mansion. And so like when they actually show that house later on in the, the film, I was like, well, no fucking wonder you couldn't afford this. Nobody can afford this house. This thing is millions of fucking dollars, dude. But yeah, you're right. They didn't even sell that one before they moved into this house. God, I didn't even think about not even showing your wife. Why didn't he just get a hotel room? Why does he need to live there? Because he wants to be in the mindset. He wants to He wants to be part, you know, he's got to inundate himself, I guess. It's like when Jared Leto becomes the character, you know, like how actors got to just live in the headspace. <laughs> Fair enough. So real quick burn through the plot. Uh, he moves into this house without consulting his wife, buying it without letting her know, lying to the cops, lying to his wife. Okay, <laughs> no problem. Bada bing, bada boom. Um, he goes into his room, uh, his daughter's room to put some boxes down where uh, his daughter is painting on the walls immediately. And evidently this was agreed upon. She's a, a young artist and they're trying to um, encourage this. Uh, she's painting pictures on her wall and he's like, hey, go help your mom. And she's like, yeah, in a little bit. Then she complains about not wanting to have moved here because evidently they didn't even consult the kids about any of this. And I know it's not the kid's decision, but yes, they just kind of spring on everybody. That conversation with the kid, his excuse was so flimsy, he couldn't even explain it to like a six-year-old why they had to move. He cracked under pressure immediately. She's like, why do we have to move? Um, uh, well, uh, we, uh, well, we just needed to. Like, God, Elliot, you're the worst. And this isn't his first offense, right? We know that he did this a few other times based on the information that the wife dumps, like, hey, you didn't move us down the street from the house again, did you? And then that didn't go well. And so he doubled down and moved into the fucking murder house. Like, bro, you're an asshole. You're a huge asshole. <laughs> get it together, Allison. Look, baby, you weren't happy when I got the blowjob, so I didn't get a blowjob this time. I just fucked her. It's different. It's okay. <laughs> right. It's fucking terrible, like, some of the... But again, his decision-making in this movie drove me crazy. Now, again, the movie was so good that I was willing to excuse so much of it, especially since it's a horror movie, but every every time he'd make a choice, I'd be like, why? <laughs> like, why are you doing this thing? That night, does he find the box before his kid does the box nightmare, or is it he find the uh, the films later on? No, he found it right away because he went up into the attic and he was moving some stuff up there, and then a scorpion popped out and he dropped the box on top and crushed the scorpion, which revealed a hidden panel in the attic where these videos were. To lead that off, though, he hears a loud thump. And I'm not talking like, oh, man, a lamp fell over. I'm talking a human-sized thump in the attic up above him. So what does he do? He goes up into the attic, doesn't turn a shit ton of lights on. Just just go up in the attic and see what's going on at nighttime after I heard a loud thump in a murder house. I swear to God, like at this point, I was like already pissed off at this character. So he goes up there. Yeah, as you say, he finds the box. He drops it on a scorpion, which actually is a little like hint of backstory for Bagul. When Dr. Jonas was showing the pictures, 
uh, Bagul took the form of a scorpion and a snake in some of those photos, in some of those uh, hand-drawn pictures. So that scorpion was likely a, a hint of that was being Bagul helping him find those videos. So yeah, he finds these Super 8 films in a box and on the side of it says Home Movies and like handwriting, which immediately made me like, if Coach McGurk from Home Movies, the cartoon shows up in this film, I'll be so happy. Okay, quick science lesson, all right? Don't mix beer with scotch. Why did that get no reaction? Everybody knows what beer is, right? Yeah. yeah. Everybody knows what scotch is. Yeah. Don't mix them. Liquor before beer, never fear. Beer before liquor, throw up quicker. <laughs> but that doesn't happen. And then, uh, so he goes downstairs and he's like, what the hell is all this? He starts watching one of the films and then hears a noise, walks through his house at night with no lights on and sees a random box in the middle of the kitchen that shouldn't be there. And he starts walking towards it. And then out of the box, his son contorts his way out upside down and starts screaming this ungodly like scream. And he freaks out, but then he immediately is like, oh, that's my kid. He grabs him. The wife's like, what's going on? He's like, he's having a night terror. They run him outside into the yard and then they're like, wake up. And he's like, where in the yard? And at that point, he the kid says something like, I had a bad dream about people who died here or something like that. The kids are tapped into something. And then the next day or something like that, that's when the kid draws it on the board. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that, uh, you know, after we see the uh, Super 8 murders at the beginning of the movie, we find out that there's a missing child, right? There's a there's a daughter that's missing. And when I when this kid unfolded himself out of the box, I thought it was the missing child. I didn't realize it was his own kid at first. I did too. So yeah, I, I was kind of framing this whole movie like, okay, these children are going to come into play somehow, right? And I started formulating a theory um, as this all went along. I was like, maybe this is one of those situations where the children are raised by the murderer or something. You know what I mean? Like to to outreach. And I actually thought deputy so-and-so would end up being on it too. He like, he seemed a little too dumb. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so my, my mystery wheels were already spinning in my head as this movie was playing out. I was like, all right, how, how's this going to be uh, unfolding as we, as we get through this? Well, with no spoilers, then you might actually like sinister too. Uh, cause it does delve into some more of that. Uh, but there is one conversation that happens very early in the movie, too, between Ellison and his wife uh, that kind of ratches it up the tension on him, which I think is supposed to make us feel for him more because he's like, you know, I, I think I'm really on to something. They're in bed together. He's like, I think I'm really on to something. I need your support. And then she goes, look, I have your I'm, I, I totally have your back. But also, if this doesn't work out, I'm taking the kids and I'm going to my sister's. Damn, man, that is not really having his back. Uh, but Ellison's an asshole, so I get it. Well, we find out that he's had a lot of misses. He's had one hit, and then he's had quite a few misses. It's I seem like I feel like the wife has um, indulged his like, fine, you want to be a novelist? I'm willing to like support you for this multiple times. Yeah, she's like, okay, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. Fool me three times, I'm taking the kids and going to my sister's. You know. <laughs> You bought a house without me, Ellison. <laughs> a couple of those misses that you mentioned, Garrett, is the when he's talking to the sheriff, sheriff's like, you put an innocent man behind bars, you know? So it wasn't, they don't go into it, but he fucked up bad. 
You know what I mean? Just by all the hints they're dropping. And I thought the movie did a really, 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 really good job of this, of kind of making you feel for Ellis as the movie like starts. And then the further you get into it, like when you actually combine all the little hints that have been dropped, and then he kind of like at the end, kind of you find out this is all for his own ego. Like it hits hard when that scene actually plays out because you're just like, holy shit, this guy's kind of a douche, like full on douche. But, you know, it's like, damn. Yeah, definitely. Before he hears the kid in the box, he actually plays the first video, which was called, um, it was the tree. He actually watches the tree tape um, happen in real time. And then that's when he hears a kid in the box. And then after that happens, I guess the next day, he goes right back to watching these movies. The next movie is um, The Pool Party. Yeah, that one's fucked up. Yo, that one was so messed up. And so he's watching this video and uh, an interesting note is evidently they recorded all these Super 8s and didn't show Ethan Hawke any of them before he actually um, watched them when he was doing his scene. So he was seeing these for the first time as he was actually like recording his scene. Oh, it's clever. Yeah, they show the pool party, which is basically a family being tied to. Um, and they, they show like little like home movie versions of them just kind of having a good time before they cut into the murder. So it's kind of like this weird flip of the switch. We went from like family home movies to like death snuff films. Uh, the family is like tied to pool furniture and then drug into the the pool where they are then drowned. Um, at this point, he catches a glimpse of something in the bottom of the pool, and it's a face. And we'll later learn that this is uh, Bagul or Boogie, aka the Boogeyman, um, in the bottom of the pool. And he's like, "What the fuck?" And then he, he goes back, and I think he looks for Bagul in other videos. And he helpfully, my favorite part of this movie is. They have to show something, right? So they show him writing down like these questions and it's like, who filmed the movie uh, is one of the questions. And I think was like, where are they is another one. It's just like really generic questions for him to put on his vision board. Uh, and I laugh every time I see them. One thing he did during that scene also that cracked me up is earlier when he was writing questions, he's like, who is Stephanie? And then he underlined Stephanie. It's like, you don't have to underline the thing you just wrote. You know, it's important, bro. That emphasis was for us, not him. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. But it was really funny because it was just like, yeah. hey, audience, you're going to need to know this. And it's like, yeah, I've never written a note. But like, you know what? I'm going to underline that I have to do laundry this weekend. <laughs> and like every good mystery, horror, thriller film, we got our go to the Internet and do research scene. I'm glad that made an appearance. <laughs> yeah, I respect that they actually used Google and like Safari. It wasn't like Fafari and Fugle. Right. Uh, I was like, damn, how'd they get the license for all that? For all my people that have uh, seen Coming to America 2, the McFlurby. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah. And as he's researching this, now this is the part where I first like, <laughs> I legitimately threw my pen down <laughs> in disgust when this happens because as he's Googling this stuff, he comes across a news report about the Miller murder, which is the one he just watched, the pool murder. He hears a thump up in the attic and then all the power in the house goes out. So he's only has the computer screen lit off battery. And then he takes like his little fucking super eight handy cam that he has and uses that as a flashlight and is like, I guess I'm going to walk through the house now in pitch black. And then he goes up into the attic and I was like, you fucking idiot. Like I would, the first thing I would do would be like, hi, honey, 
let's go ahead and get the kids and we're going to go stay at the the Motel 8 tonight. And then tomorrow we're going to bring the cops and find out what the fuck is going on in my murder house. He does it. He's like, I'm just going to go check it out. Ellison never, he never turns the lights on when he goes and investigates. He's always investigating in pitch black. I'm like, dude, turn your lights on. I mean, yeah, one once or twice the power goes out, but throughout the movie, that's not always out when he's looking around the house at night. No, he's walking through his house in pitch black. I don't like Ellison as much as the next guy. But I will say, as a homeowner, when the power goes out, the first thing you do is like, God, this fucking sucks. And you're going to make your way to the circuit breaker or the switch box or whatever. You don't normally think like, I got to evacuate my house. So I understand where he's coming from. If, you know, he doesn't believe in the supernatural bullshit, he thinks he's chasing a serial killer. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But this is the thing. He thinks he's chasing a serial killer in a murder house where the serial killer killed a family and that person was never caught and he hears a loud thump from the attic. (laughs) Guess what, bro? That might be your serial killer. Get the fuck out of the house. It's like, (laughs) like, fine. If you don't believe in supernatural, that's fine. But you legitimately moved into a murder house. Criminals sometimes come back to the scene of the crime. Get the fuck out, son. A threat is a threat. Whether or not it has flesh or ectoplasm, it's still a threat. (laughs) Doesn't he grab a bat, though? He grabs a bat. Yeah. He, well, like, yeah, I think this is the scene where he grabs the bat. No, he grabs a knife at this point and goes up into the attic. And this is where he sees the snake. Right. A snake scares him because something fell over. And it was the the top of the box to the home movies. On the, the underside of the box are hand-drawn, like, stick figure pictures of all the different murders that he's been watching on these films. And so it's like, oh, my God. And the names match up. And he's like, that's pool party. That's, you know, barbecue time, you know, like whatever it is. You're like, what the fuck, dude? Like, (laughs) like at this point, it's all adding up, son. And I understand you're trying to do a book, but you have a family. You have a wife. You have kids. Like at some point, be like, hey, go stay with your wife and your your sister. (laughs) Take the kids. The formula we're going to get throughout this is like every night he's going to watch a new tape and get spooked, right? Right. Uh, so in this one, he falls through the attic and they obviously wakes everyone up and he cuts to the ambulance and he's getting wrapped up. And they're like, no, I don't want to go to the hospital. And deputy so-and-so is there sort of taking a report. And he's like, look, I heard a thought. And this movie doesn't have a lot of comedy in it, but this one scene is very well done. Because he's like, look, I heard a thump in the attic and I went to check it out. He's like, oh, do you have any uh, deputy so-and-so's like well, do you have any varmint or anything? He's like, well, I saw a snake. And he's like, oh, snakes don't have feet. <laughs> it's this really great interplay between Deputy So-and-So. And we're calling him Deputy So-and-So because he legit never has a name. Uh, we find out in this scene that uh, the deputy really wants to be that cop that's mentioned as like the special thanks to this cop who helped me, you know, break this case open. So he's a big fan and he's he's trying to please and help um, Ellis during all this. So we're getting this really good interplay where he's, He's trying to be helpful, but he's kind of being like your standard doofy um, deputy. He's, he's like, I saw a scorpion. He's like, scorpion have feet, but you wouldn't hear them. <laughs> it's like, all right, thanks a lot, deputy so-and-so. Finally, he tells him he's got squirrels. And then that's when you get to uh, what Garrett was mentioning, where he's like, look, this is really embarrassing. I left my copy of Kentucky Blood at the station. Can I get you? He's like, yeah, I have plenty in my office. They go in there. And that's where he's like, you know. Uh, you always put in your books how you couldn't have done it without the help of deputy so-and-so. I want to be deputy so-and-so. Yeah. And that's where Ellison 
at first he's like, all right, yeah, whatever. But then it clicks and he's like, all right, here's what I need you to do. And he wants to get information on all the murders, non-public information. You know, where were they, where were they at? Cause he doesn't have like addresses. He's trying to get the time frame that this all happened in. Cause he wants to piece it together. Uh, so he sends deputy so-and-so on his way. Um, and he continues his research there's a total of five Super 8 reels, right? And each one seemed to be in a different location, and even a different time frame. Um, as this is kind of pieced together by Ellison, we find out that this has been taking place over several decades. The first one happened in the 60s. Uh, last one was, what, 1997 or 8, I believe? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was in the 90s. Yeah, during that scene also, Deputy So-and-so, he sees a picture of um, Under the Water, that picture of uh, Bagul, he sees the face and he's like, what is that? And he's like, I don't know. I think that's the guy who's been doing these murders. This is before he asked for the um, the murder uh, information from uh, the deputy. And then he goes, I also found this. And he shows them the symbol, uh, the Bagul symbol, which is showing up in all these videos. Um, it's kind of like a, a really kind of a culty symbol. This is where uh, deputy goes, oh, you might want to reach out to Professor Jonas at the university. He He knows a lot about this occult stuff. We call him in on special cases sometimes. He might be able to help you. So that's like a little like tidbit that's dropped in this scene that's going to come back later. Um, and then, yeah, that's when he asked like, hey, can you get me this information, this confidential information about the murders? And um, the deputy is now going to do that. The drawings in the top of the box call Bagul Mr. Boogie, right? We don't find out the name of the creature until he actually contacts the professor later on, which a very nice reveal ends up being Vincent D'Onofrio. I didn't expect that. I was like, awesome. He's in this movie too. Cool. (laughs) One hour, four minutes and 50 seconds. I have it written down. Vincent, that's my man. God, I love him so much. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Bagul's design real quick. What do you guys think of this as a monster, right? It's a brand new monster brought into the horror realm, a pagan god called Bagul. And what did you think of him? He looks like a knockoff Tommy Wiseau. (laughs) (laughs) I I like the look. What I like is you don't really see a lot of them. You see them mostly in flashes. uh, So that works for him. But from what you do see, I found him sufficiently scary. Yes. And that's one thing I want to point out is uh, the one thing that I initially had a problem with the, uh, the Bagul design is it looks like he's wearing a suit a la kind of Slender Man. Um, which I always found to have like a, a black three piece suit kind of thing always seemed a little awkward to me for like ancient characters. But the more you see it, it looks like it's just kind of like this black coat that, you know, but it's a, it's a more modern looking outfit and, but his face and his presence and, um, the way they present him in this is utterly terrifying. Um, at first I was a little like, oh, I don't care for this design. But when you actually see it in the scenes and in context, it works so damn well. I agree. Now, I found an interview on io9 with Cargill and Derrickson where they were talking about the design of Bagul. And initially, Cargill had the idea that Bagul was going to look like a sinister Willy Wonka. And I'm really glad that didn't happen because I think if you start going that direction, you're going to turn it into the Babadook or the, you know, the bend, not the bendy man, but the, uh, the conjuring character with the top, the hat and the, the crooked man, the crooked man. Yeah. It's, it's, you're starting to get into the realm of the crooked man. And I think you take away some of that, um, uniqueness. If you start going to that territory, like with a Willy Wonka and a hat, funny enough, what they decided to do is they hit flicker. 
and they searched the tag horror and just looked at thousands of images and they came across one of uh, Mr. Boogie slash Bagul. They're like, hey, that seems cool. Let's use that as inspiration. But rather than that, they just bought the photo off the photographer and made that their demon. <laughs> like That's how they came up with the idea and where they got the design is they just went to Flickr and bought a picture. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I love the fact that like, you know, in the creative realm, there's like, yo, like respect people who are turning out quality shit, you know, like pay people for what they do. And, you know, I'm glad they didn't try to just rip it off. I'm glad they didn't try to do the thing where they're like, let's just get it as close as possible and not have to. They were just like, yo, let's pay the man because this is dope as hell. Yeah. And he got a credit in the movie as like, you know, a design guy. So he even got a little credit on the film. So super dope. So Bagul, yeah, Garrett, he looks like a knockoff Tommy Wiseau if Tommy Wiseau was in like Norwegian black metal makeup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, Bagul, let's point out, he's got these these uh, very prominent brows, like the like kind of skull prominent brows, um, very sunken in eye cavities. He has eyes but they're very cast in shadow. Um, he's got a very pale grayish uh, skin tone um, and his mouth is uh, missing. It looks like his skin has been like smushed, like smoothed over to where his his mouth, his, his oral cavity is like gone. I know in like the Bagul, like I don't, I guess it's mythology um, is his brother Hogel or Hor, God, I can't remember his brother's name, which is another demon that feeds off children, um, did that to him, like made his mouth go away. So, um, some really interesting, like, are you saying that this Bagul has real world, uh, uh, like he's not a made up for the movie. Like he's an actual thing. I thought they made him up from scratch. This is the backstory I was reading about this. Um, Mr. Boogie is only a nickname for the monster at the center of the sinister movie. His real moniker is Bagul, sometimes spelled B-U-H-G-U-U-L. Bagul is a pagan god dating back to Babylonian times, and well, he's not a benevolent deity. To survive, Bagul requires the souls of human children, which he literally consumes. He doesn't do this painlessly either, luring them to another world in which he snacks on their souls for over a long period. Bagul is the brother of Moloch, another pagan deity that preys on children, although the two aren't friends, and Moloch is actually the reason Bagul's mouth is sealed up. That was from Screen Rant, um, and they were like talking about the history of uh, Mr. Boogie. So I don't know if it's based off like real world pagan uh, god. This was fabricated for the movie, so they went into his, his backstory for that. So yeah, okay, not a real pagan deity, completely made up for the movie, but uh, that's I like that they went into so much detail. That's nice. Yeah, I really love I love that kind of backstory, even if we have to get it via second hand. But um, yeah, like that's that's what I was reading about, and I was like, oh, it's really fucking interesting that they have like that deep of a, a concept for it. So when he when he discovers the pace in the in the in the pool, he then immediately goes back to the previous tapes he's reviewed, and he's now looking. And in every instance of the snuff on these super eights, he finds a shot of Bagul hanging out, just kicking it as you do as a pagan god. <laughs> right. <laughs> the next thing that happens is he wakes up, and the film is auto playing. The super eight is auto playing in the other room. He wakes up to the sound of the the super eight uh, reel playing, and he's like, "What the fuck?" And he walks into the room. And again, it's like, dude, why the fuck would you ever do this? So this is where he's watching it and he has it playing on the Super 8, but it's also playing on his computer. And um, he's looking at this footage and he's like, what the hell? At one point, he freezes the footage he had of the Super 8 camera he was using as a flashlight when he went up to the attic to, to first, you know, drop the box and fall through the ceiling. And he, when he's falling through the ceiling, he pauses it on a single frame and he sees like children's hands pulling him down through the floor. 
he freaks the fuck out at this point. As you should. Yeah, absolutely. Because like <laughs> they're not there except for in one single frame and they look very ghostly. Um, he loses it. He's like, what the fuck? He hears a noise outside. He runs outside with a baseball bat and he finds his kid, Travis, shaking and shivering and like staring wide eyed from one of the bushes. So that's a jump scare. He sees his kid and he's like, oh, my God, you know, get him back inside. He gets the kid inside. He, his wife is like, what the fuck is going on? He's like, I'll tell you in a second. I got to go back outside and um, get something I left. He goes back outside to get his bat. And there's like this Rottweiler out there just like growling at him. And he's kind of looking at the dog and the dog's looking at him. And he's like, look, I'm going to grab this bat and I'm going to leave. Okay, dog, don't, don't fuck with me. I won't fuck with you. And behind him in this kind of well-lit like clearing in between the bushes is the children that have been missing from all the snuff films, like in shadow, like standing there behind him. And you find out the dog's actually growling at them. He goes inside and they're like, look, I found the kid outside. She's like, I'll call the doctor in the morning. That scene just ends. And then I think it's like the next day or whatever. He's in the office doing his work and she, he hears his wife be like, Allison. And he rushes out and the little girl has drawn the hanging on the wall outside the room. Well, she draws the kid, Stephanie. The missing kid. Yeah, sorry. Because she's like, oh, that used to be her room. And so she wanted me to draw it. And then it like clicks for the the wife. And she's like, go to your room. And then they go in and they have the big blowout where she's like, you promised me. And he's like, well, technically, my promise is truthful. <laughs> Piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> he's so, it's like, dude, I mean... You've had to been married for a little bit because you have two kids. So how have you learned nothing about marriage at this point? Don't fall back on technicalities. But uh, yeah, I mean, Trevor's like 12 years old, so they've been together for at least 12 years. Yeah. And and he's trying to pull some. That's like first year marriage shit. Uh, <laughs> technically. So they have this huge blowout and he's like, look, we've never been so broke. I need to do this because it's my legacy and we had no choice because this house was super cheap. And she's like, dude, your kids are your legacy. What the hell are you talking about? And uh, he's like, well, you know, besides the kids, I need this book. I can't go back to teaching. If I'm not famous, what's the point of even being alive is basically his argument. And she's like, dude, you're fucking crazy. Right. And and one of the things a movie does is it introduces this idea that Ellison is a drinker, right? He's always got a bottle of, of alcohol in his hand and a, and a glass. Like while he's watching all the Super 8 films unravel, like he's drinking faster and more. You could see that it's like affecting him, obviously. But even when he's not watching those things, he's got a bottle of whiskey at hand and people are starting to make these comments like, well, I know you're a drinker, but I'm going to take your word on it. And did you think that this, this trope of like, well, we don't believe him because he drinks? Like, I think that really wasn't that necessary for this movie. Just felt like it was a little bit much, maybe. Yeah, it felt like, and I don't know if they did this on purpose or what, but like they were trying to just show Ellison collapsing under this stress. Like they really, I think they wanted us to feel bad for him. Like, man, look at this husband doing all of this for his family. Like, I think that's the how he's cracking under all the stress. Obviously, I don't see it that way, but I think that's what the movie was going for. So that's why they showed him drinking. And, and it's like, yeah, it's your point, Mark. I don't think any of that needed to be in the film. It was fine enough without that plot point. Well, I think that's used as a, a very interesting thing because um, 
you know, like mixed into up to this point, up to the the blowout between the uh, the husband and the wife, we actually have another scene where uh, Deputy So and So comes back and he's like, "Hey, I found out all this information about the these murders." And then at this point, Ellis is putting it together, and he's kind of like, "Wait a minute!" And then Deputy goes, "Look, I understand I'm a, to- a small town deputy, but I can." I can identify a a string of murders that are connected. And he's like, all right, what's going on here? And he's like, okay, look, straight up. I think that this might be this, might be this. And then the deputy goes, this is some occult type shit. Like, this is like, and he's like, well, what would you have done? He's like, I wouldn't even have moved here. I'd be gone by now. I don't believe in any, um, <laughs> you know, stuff. Stuff, you mean... Uh- supernatural, the metaphysical, the paranormal, that type of stuff. Right. <laughs> right. Of course you don't. You never would have moved into a crime scene if you did, but here we are having this conversation. Do you want to know what I think? Yes. I think that you moved yourself into the house of murder victims and immediately set about trying to put yourself in their headspace. And I also think that you've begun discovering things about this case that go to darker places than you were prepared for. That's it. I also think that every time that I've been to your house, there's a whiskey bottle in your office. It doesn't appear to be the slightest bit neglected. Mr. Oswald, Mr. Oswald, listen, I don't, I'm not saying that, that you have a drinking problem. Right, okay, I don't think I, that, nor do I think that you're making any of this up no. to get attention. I don't think that. What I do think is that, that you were under so much stress, you put yourself under so much stress that your mind is trying to process all of it at once. <laughs> so you don't believe in any of that? otherworldly stuff, right? Are you kidding me? I believe in all that stuff. I, I wouldn't sleep one night in this place. Are you nuts? <laughs> Such a great play, because the movie is so tense, and I think they do a good job of interspacing deputy so-and-so, like, when needed to sort of give you a breather. Um, they do a, a good job there, because he's he's a great actor, and he has great comedic timing. He's like, yeah, I would never live in this house. I was like, all right, thanks, buddy. So that was really great. And also, right before that, the night before, there was a scene, and I, he's walking through his house in the dark, of course, because why would you turn on lights uh, with a bat? And we see the children, the slow motion children running around his house and they're bumping into things. And that's the bumps that he's hearing. He's hearing the kids ghosts or whatever they are like running through his house in slow motion while he's moving at normal speed. And they're like creeping right behind him and they're going, shh, putting their finger over their mouth. And you know, what did you guys think of that scene? Cause I thought that was super freaking effective. I thought it went on a little bit long, but man, the tension in that scene was so good for me. Yeah. That was a really good one. I agree with your assessment. I, I liked it, but it did go on just a bit long. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a really good one. I agree a little long, but the idea was cool. So the next, the next major plot development is they're in bed and he hears the super eight film playing again by itself. And he's like, what in the fucking fuck? You know, like now I have a question because, um, I know that you guys, uh, subscribe to a 1950s lifestyle and sleep in separate beds from your wife. So you don't share a bed. That's totally cool. You guys, I mean, you know, do your thing. Um, but I know that both of you are married. So I had a question when you wake up at night and get out of bed, does your wife like wake up and acknowledge that you're getting up? Not always. It depends, uh, like how loud, I mean, I try to be super quiet about it just to not wake her up and vice versa. Right. But, uh, I think if a super eight was loud enough to wake me up, I would probably wake her up as well. Yeah. And not to mention while he's exploring, he's exploring his house like four or five nights in a row where he's being haunted by these, uh, quote unquote ghost kids. 
and he's being loud, if not the bumps and bangs and everything else going on. He even like when he fell through and he's like screaming and like, why is the whole house not awake right now? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they should be up and be like, dad, what the fuck? You know, mom, dad's hanging from the attic again. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, he gets up out of bed after hearing the super eight player. And I was like, and the, the wife is just laying there completely unfazed. He goes through the house. He goes to where the super eight player is and to the office and it's not there. It's not playing. And he's like, where the fuck is this sound coming from? Uh, he goes up the stairs and he hears the Super 8 player playing up in the attic. And in typical ingenious Ellis fashion, it's like, after all this shit, sure, let's go check it out. Let's go see what's in the attic playing the Super 8 tape. So he climbs up the attic stairs and peers his head up through the attic hole so he can just see what's up there. Now, I am going to go on record this trope and horror will never not be terrifying for me raising your head up into an attic and then barely being able to scan the horizon of what's in there what's above you what's behind your head what's in front of your head waiting for you like that will always just terrify me to no end but he pokes his head up into the attic and sure enough there's all the missing children sitting on the floor crisscross applesauce watching the super eight film on the wall, and then they all turn their head and look at him and go, shh. And on the screen is Bagul freeze-framed, and then out of nowhere, the the biggest jump scare of the film, where the it looks like he comes off the wall, a la It Part 2, or Part 1, I can't remember which one it is, um, and then just jumps up right in his face and scares the hell out of him. He falls down the attic stairs, like straight to the ground, is freaking out, goes and gets the bat, yeah, he panics. He does the first good decision that he's had in a while, grabs the box, rushes him outside, sets the whole thing on fire, goes and finally wakes up his wife. Uh, now, how she slept through all that, astonishing, to your point, uh, Mark and Garrett, uh, and is like, pack your shit, we're getting out of here. Uh, and they leave. And I totally respect that. I was like, that is good decision. Let's let's elaborate on the moment. So he grabs this box full of um, Super 8 films. He takes it outside. He has a burn barrel, just because why not? Uh, throws them in there, lights that shit on fire. His wife comes out, I was like, what do you do? And he's like, get the kids, get your shit, and we're getting out of here. And she's like, wait a minute, what are you doing? And he's like, get the kids and get out of here. Like, he like yells at her and it's like, yo, <laughs> you found out you lived in murder house. Your husband's outside burning evidence of some kind and telling you we're getting the fuck out. Don't question it. Be like, how fast can I pack a suitcase? Like that should be the only God. It drives me crazy when this stuff happens in films. Cause I'm just like, Everyone needs to take living in a murder house or a death cult or whatever way more seriously than they do. I got to go back to one thing you had mentioned, Garrett, about the attic business. Uh, Well, yes, that trope will, one, I would never just stick my head in an attic. But can I tell you that horror movies totally made me think that every single house just comes with a full-size attic. Uh, I've lived in many houses and I've had zero so far. I've had shitty crawl spaces, uh, but no, just full-size attic. Uh, So... I got to tell you, the prevalence of addicts seems to be declining in America. <laughs> That's a good point. Most addicts are pretty small, at least here in Texas, from our experience. Um, I will say this, as someone who did live in a uh, place with a full-size attic at one point, fuck that. <laughs> fuck everything about that. Fuck anything about a full... If an attic is not something that requires me to crawl on hands and knees through, 
then that means whatever else is up there can run at full speed standing up. So fuck that noise. <laughs> fuck full size addicts. Oh, man. Yeah, it drives me crazy. Attic scenes. I'm just like, I'm done. I, I oh, man, they're so effective. But ugh, anyway, what do you guys think of the soundtrack? We didn't talk about it up front, but like throughout the movie, it's mostly just very disturbing mood setting, thumping, like, um, I don't know what to call it exactly, but it's just like pulsating, unnerving sound effects. What did you guys think of this? I found it effective. It didn't, it doesn't actually stand out to me. Like I can't think of, oh yeah, what's the soundtrack to Sinister and just sort of hum any of it, but it does its job of when you're watching the movie of ratcheting up the tension and, and, and adding to the atmosphere of the film. So I would say uh, it doesn't slap, but it well done. Yeah, it's very atmospheric. Um, I did notice one thing the first time I watched it. There's a uh, documentary, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, uh, called um, Until the Light Takes Us. Um, it's about the the black metal movement and, and some of the people who kind of founded that up in um, Norway and stuff like that. And it's, oh man, it's super creepy and unlike unnerving and just kind of like it's very interesting uh they also made a a a hollywood version of it called lords of chaos um but in that that documentary that song gyroscope that with the chanting going on in it that plays when he's burning the films and also during the credits of this movie um that song plays in that so to hear that in this movie i was like yo that's a good choice like that shit's super unnerving it it will not let you relax and i think that was a really good job of using a soundtrack that that does amplify the uneasiness and maybe that's one of the things that played into uh to people's constant high tension heart rate type stuff yeah i bet so like a lot of the hauntings that ellison goes through are almost dreamlike right nightmarish but yeah so they move back into the old house which never sold uh on the way home they get pulled over because Ellison's speeding out away from the town. He's pulled over by the sheriff, and the sheriff's like, you're going a little too fast. And I thought that whole drinking thing was going to come into play here. We're like, oh, you're drunk. You're getting a DWI. Family, go back to the house, and we're throwing you in jail, right? No, that doesn't come into play at all. He's like, I'm, you know, he's like, sheriff, I'm taking your advice. I'm getting the hell out of town, and I'm putting miles between me and the house. And he's like, all right, well, I don't see any reason to get your autograph on this ticket. Tears it up and says, get going. <laughs> were, were you okay with that, though? Because um, this whole time, the cop's like, I want you out of here. I don't, the sheriff's like, I don't think you should be here. I think this is a bad move. You need to leave. And in the middle of the night, he's got his family packed up and he's speeding away from the murder house. I feel like as a cop, I'd be like, hmm. Maybe need to go check out Murder House again. <laughs> you know, like but he he does ask him. He's like, you weren't run out of town, right? I don't want to be he read it in your book that you were mistreated or anything. Nelson's like, no, 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 nothing like that. I just changed my mind. I want to go home. Uh, thank you. You know, no, no bad things happened. So the cop does push a little bit. Well, he pushes to make sure that he's not going to be blamed for being an asshole cop. But the thing is, though, is he's like, nope, nothing like that, officer. Just want to get the fuck out of here at the middle of the night as fast as I can. See you later. And the cop's like, have a good one, buddy. It was nice. No, it's like as a cop, I'd be like, cool. Um, Hi, everybody. All points bulletin. We probably need to go check out Murder House. <laughs> you know, like it just ran off the residence in the middle of the night for whatever reason. We should probably take a look. I don't know. He was just happy to get his wish. He's like, let him go. Um, so a few days pass. We see the family. Uh, they've gotten all their stuff back from Murder House and they're unpacking and 
And uh, Ellison goes up into his own attic, his, uh, his original house, and lo and behold, the box of tapes with the Super 8 camera are all there, unburned, untouched, and it freaks him the fuck out, as it would. So let's talk about Vincent D'Onofrio and the professor, right? At some point, they're having this FaceTime meeting where he's dumping the information about like, oh, this definitely sounds like it's an occult, and... Uh, Ellison sends him over the symbol and he's like, yeah, let me look into this. I'll get back to you. Well, when they're in this, his old house, they have another conversation over, over FaceTime. They're like, look, I've only found a few instances of the symbol. Here they are. Here's a painting. Here's one over here from like the, you know, whatever BC or 1500s or whatever it is. I can't remember the time frame. He's like, most of them have been destroyed throughout history. But the symbol is, is it's, it's a portal or a pathway from Bagul's realm to ours. And he's like, oh, shit. He's like, yeah, the thing is, is like every single one of those families, they all lived in one of the other murder victims' house at one point in time. And that's what ties them all together. So we find out that this symbol is actually uh, what is linking everything together. And now that Ellison and his family have been exposed to it, the, he gets a phone call from Deputy So-and-so. And he's like, bro, why did you leave? It's like... I just did a little bit of detective work and you went straight into the next line of, you know, where, where the grid is, is kind of leading this, this, uh, the next event and you're in like ground zero and Ellison's like, Oh shit. Yeah. Sort of like he basically, there's not a predefined line. Basically they find out the connection is, is like the family that got murdered lived in, lived in the house that a, a murder happened previously or since Ellis had just lived in one of the houses and moved to this house. Now their new man, their, their old mansion is now part of the, the, uh, the lineage, the line of where murders can take place from Bagul. So we have like a paranormal activity situation here where the demon attaches to the person, not the house. So every time someone moved from house A to house B, the demon just came along for the ride, right? And now Ellison had brought him into this new house because he had left the old house. And now Bagul very happily just lives here now. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think he, I think he lives in any of the places that he's been touched, you know, that had been touched by his murder. I think you can be, you could have lived in any of the previous houses and still basically continue that, um, uh, that process. I think this is like, this is like a slow infection of like him spreading his ability to, to do that. Now, I do want to take a second here. Um, I won't go too far into it because I can be, I can totally nerd out on this, but shout outs to Derrickson and Cargill for taking that conversation with professor Jonas to give us the biggest, most detailed exposition dump of like the history of this in the tightest format possible. We, they explain and, and what you said, Mark is correct, except they go into like so much more beautiful detail of, they say that it's not just the symbol, they believe that pictures of Bagul, not just the symbol, but any, any depictions of Bagul is how he can infect into our realm. Like that's what allows him to go through. So by his face being in these films, that in itself is a portal. The drawings of the symbol on places, that in itself is of the portal. And that's why uh, when um, Vincent D'Onofrio is telling uh, Ellis um, like, you know, I couldn't find hardly anything on this because they destroyed so much of it because they believed that his depiction was one of the ways that he could, you know, interact with our realm. And that's when uh, Ellis is like, well, what happens if you burn all this stuff? Like, what happens if you destroy this stuff? And he's like, are you asking about what they did? And then it's like, um, um, 
I got to go, <laughs> which was really dumb. It's like, this guy might be able to help you, dude. You should keep talking. But um, yeah, no, they, they did a great job of providing the backstory of, of how Bagul can actually access us, the forms he can take, the fact that he feeds on children is explained in this, um, which I thought was interesting because he takes one kid to go feed off them for an, a long period of time. But how are those ghost kids still around helping him out? Like, do they become his little minions? I don't know if that's explained in Sinister 2 or anything, but... Yeah, they go into it in Sinister 2, and they seem to be... You know, I I think they do explain it in Sinister 2, but I legitimately can't remember because I, like, push that movie deep, deep down into the, the recesses of my mind. Uh, but there is some... there they explain it in some way because like the premise of sinister two, I don't think this spoils it. Cause I think it's in the trailer is like the children are trying to recruit these other two children. Uh, so these two kids can actually see the ghost kids and they come to them as friends. Well, we get that in this movie too, right? So like if you had seen sinister one through the eyes of the kids, that's sinister two. But worse. Weird. Okay, yeah, because I thought that was really it because I was like, if he's feeding off of them, how are they still around helping him or running interference for him or, you know, whatever it is these kids are doing? Um, Maybe they just become part of his 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 crew, his squad. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, running crew, now you're ghost too. Yeah, they could be like <laughs> projections. Maybe they're, they're not their own entities. They're projections of Bagul. Interesting. It's, it's explained at this point that Ellis, he goes up to that box and he drops it and he finds an envelope that says extended endings or extended cuts. I can't remember what it says exactly, but it's like this little like envelope of like the endings of all these snuff films that he's been watching. So we get this like really tight, awesome scene. And I use awesome in air quotes um, over a podcast because why not um, of him editing Super 8 film together. <laughs> that was like. I was like, hot, nonstop editing action. Back to Mark's point or the Googling scene. We The movie takes the time to show us him Googling how to edit Super 8 film. <laughs> Which is kind of, I mean, he probably wouldn't know. So, I mean, yeah, this movie, this movie does a good job of closing plot holes. Yeah, we, we actually didn't mention all the snuff films. We only mentioned two so far, didn't we? So we we skipped over the one in the garage, and we didn't talk about the lawnmower one. Holy shit! Yeah, let's let's talk about those real quick before we um, we talk about these extended cuts. So we have the the initial one, which is the tree hanging. We have the pool one where they get dr- tied to lawn furniture and drug into the pool and drowned. There's uh, you said there was one with a car. Oh yeah, where the family that was at a barbecue um, they get tied up into a car that's been chained up, chained shut so no one can get out. And it gets lit on fire. And it had Bagul's symbol on the hood of the car. Yeah. There's the one where they're sleeping and someone slits the throats of the family that's all sleeping. And then what's the other one? The lawnmower one. Jesus, that one. Oof. That one's a rough one. I agree. It's a, it's, it's a shot like, well, first off, like, let's just put it out there. Like, this old Super 8 footage is creepy in itself, right? Like, especially when you put murders on them. There's just something about that uh, older medium mm-hmm. that when you view it in today's time... Yeah, it just feels raw. Like, like it's capturing the, the, the grittiness of, like, just... Yeah, it almost makes it feel more real because, you know, it's like, oh, there, this was pre-Photoshop. This was before there was special effects. You know what I mean? This is a home movie. So what we're seeing is is truly murders happening on on film here. Uh, so the lawnmower one in particular, the camera is pointed at the ground, 
and you see the grass and you see the lawnmower rolling by and it's a really tight shot like you can't see ahead of you and then all of a sudden you get like five frames there's a, a person's head and the lawnmower just goes straight over the head and there's a good sound jump it you know got me a little bit i was like oh you got me with your, your noise good job movie <laughs> <laughs> well done that's the part of the film that um, after you see that, because it's like kind of like it's nighttime and it is like a POV like camera shot with like a spotlight just on the, the lawnmower. So you see the the head come into frame. You see Ellis's response. He's like, oh, like he recoils from what he just saw with that big uh, audio jump. The scene kind of fades out a little bit. You get like a little bit of a darker frame. That's when I saw my reflection on my iPad. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? I <laughs> my roommate was like, are you okay? And I was like, watching a more horror movie. Oh man, it scared the shit out of me. But yeah, that one was real. That one really got me. So John said earlier, he learned how to splice super eight film together. Thanks to Google searches. And here he is taking the envelope of extended footage and he's putting it together on all the reels. So we're watching all the murder uh, snuff films again. Only this time we get to see what happens after the murders. And it was revealed that each missing child was the one behind the camera and who instigated all the murders. At this point in time, you start to put together, Ellison's daughter is now in that recruitment phase. Uh, they show a coffee cup that had like a handwritten note says, enjoy your drink, daddy, or something like that. He looks into the cup and there's like this almost like glow stick liquid in there. I don't know what she used to poison him. I really want to know that. Did Bagul tell her how to like concoct a sleeping potion or something? Well, it, it's got to be glow stick liquid. I think you nailed it. Uh, but the, the note, it says, good night, daddy. Uh, so, oh, right. Uh, yeah. At the last minute, I guess Bagul has a very uh, dad joke sense of humor. <laughs> right. uh, but as for this, as for the sleeping potion, uh, I yeah, it was weird. And also, I mean, if it's going to show up at the end of the drink, it must have been present in sufficient quantities that he could have seen it at any point of drinking this <laughs> beverage or tasted it. But I imagine yeah. why is daddy's coffee glowing in the dark? <laughs> <laughs> is it going to turn me into a Ninja turtle? Okay. So I must've missed that because when Bagul picks up Ashley after she does the deed and we see all the stuff happen, which we'll talk about in just a second, his hand is glowing green. And I didn't know if that was Bagul blood, but it sounds like that was like glow stick stuff or was it Bagul blood that poisoned him? Because Bagul's hands are like covered in the the glowy green liquid. And I was like, what the fuck is that? You know, like I didn't notice it in the coffee cup. So I don't know oh. if Bagul did it or if it's like Bagul's like secret secretions that he <laughs> uses to poison people. Maybe that's how they all because remember in all these snuff films, all the families are tied up and um, duct taped and, and chained and stuff like that. And no kid could overpower these adults. So maybe it is Bagul's like special sauce or whatever that he uses to incapacitate the families so these kids can actually put them in the situations they do because no kid's going to be able to noose up four family members like by themselves like that's yo that's crazy i didn't even think about that that's messed up but yeah i don't know if you guys saw his hand was covered in that liquid no i didn't notice that so yeah maybe it's like the ghoul blood yeah that makes sense so wrapping up the end of the film uh, uh here we go ellison is knocked out on the ground he's like he's fading in and out and we see ashley walk into frame 
and she's got an axe and the Super 8 camera she's recording all this on. She then goes and mutilates her whole family and then she takes the box of the Super 8 and then draws in her own depiction of the stick figures of, of the murders. She does very helpfully say, I'll make you famous again, daddy, before uh, she then murders everybody. Yeah. I kind of like that. I thought that was a, I, I, it was kind of dad jokey, as you guys mentioned, but I thought that was super impactful. I would agree. Because it played into his own ego, which was kind of his own downfall in this movie. No, uh, it was good. I liked it too. And then as the uh, Super 8's playing in the room, Ashley's kind of looking onto the screen all the missing children there are staring back at her and she's kind of mimicking their movements. And from out behind comes Bagul and he takes her into the Super 8 film and they walk off into whatever realm, I guess, uh, Bagul calls home. That's the end of the movie. So he gets he gets his kid to feed on and, you know, Ellis and his family are dead. I, I got to be honest, we see a lot of endings in horror movies that are almost telegraphed. Like you kind of know what's coming. You kind of know... I, I thought this one did a really good job of even like, you know, even though we kind of know what's happening, it did a good job of kind of subverting our expectations and um, kind of like, oh, shit, she's got an axe now. Oh, shit. She's drawing the picture. Oh, shit. She's in the movie. You know, like it was like every step of this this end um, scene did a really good job of kind of not throwing me for a loop, but really kind of like, oh, wow. Like it, it got me each time something new developed because I I kind of expected him to get the kid, but I didn't expect it to play out the way it did. I don't know if you guys saw it coming blatantly, but it really got me. I think it wrapped up nicely. You know, it didn't leave anything open really other than, um, you know, the questions that we've kind of raised right now, like what happens to the children afterwards? How long do they live? You know, how does that kind of stuff? But I think in terms of the story with Ellison, it's wrapped up really nicely. I think they did a good job. Well, I think it sounds like three recommendations from us. I think this should fall into a must-watch category for me. I think you guys should, if you haven't seen it, you definitely should. I don't know why I put it off so long. Yeah, I'm glad I saw this one. Well, now that we loop back to the end, let me ask you guys, after talking about it a little more, do you feel like it's it's cropped up or it deserves its, its higher status? Maybe not number one spot for you, but do you feel that it deserves its higher place on the scariest movie list? Yeah, I mean it's a scary movie. I'm not gonna take that away from it. I like, uh, I I like it. You know, like Mark said, I would recommend it. Um, so I think, I mean, I guess I have a problem with the premise of scariest movie of all time. Maybe that's just I think an impossibility to pick. But this one is definitely a, a scary movie, and it's like Mark said, one of the must watches, especially for more modern horror. Yeah, I, I think it's okay to put it on a list like that. I don't think it's going to go on my list. Maybe a top 100 list, I might drop it in. But again, I don't get scared by this stuff all that much. So I, I'm not the test audience to tell you what is the scariest thing. You know, uh, if I am, you're going to hear more religious movies like I told you at the top of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you ever see This is the End? Uh, you should check out that movie. That's about the rapture. Oh, yeah, that's a comedy. It was pretty funny. I liked it. It was pretty good. Well, let me ask you a quick little something for our, our guests who who bothered to stick to the end of this episode. And by the way, thank you all out there for listening to us uh, jabber on about movies for as long as you have. Uh, we are going to continue doing this and we're going to I'm going to continue to get off my ass and fix my schedule so I can get you guys some merch and stuff out there. But that being said, a little special something for our, our guests at the end. What's one thing that you guys do in your normal day to day life that legitimately 
frightens you? Not like, you know, like pay my taxes or anything like that, but like, is there something that, that you have a moment of in your life that when you do, you consistently have that twinge of fear that like, oh shit, like, you know, like what if ghosts or demons are real? Like, do you guys have any of those moments? Um, not so much now, but for, I mean, years, well into, I would say my twenties, I could not put my hands or feet outside of my covers or sheets. Like I would just be confident that something was going to grab me. Um, so when I would go to sleep, my covers, at least when I fell asleep, would be neck high. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Mark? I don't think I have any of those or nothing that's coming straight away to my brain. I mean, as a kid, I would not step on a crack, but it wasn't because I literally thought my mom's back was going to get smashed into bits. You know, I was just doing it out of habit and be like, you know, the whole, yeah, this is what you do. You don't step on these cracks, you know. Since I've moved away from like kind of my belief in religion and all that, a lot of that has subsided, I guess, if that makes sense. Interesting. What broke for me is discovering that if you put one foot outside of your sheets, it is like a perfect sleep temperature. And that is more important to me now. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to try that one. Demons do your worst. I'm getting comfy. It's like a radiator, Mark. If you've never done it, put one foot out there. You can't go back. Gotcha. I'll try it out tonight. As our our resident real toughie, I'm going to give you guys a couple of mine. Uh, These still, to this day, prominently affect me um, constantly. Um, In the shower, uh, if I close my eyes for too long... I am convinced that I will open my eyes and something will be standing outside of my shower curtain looking at me. When I shampoo my, my beard or, you know, like wash my head and stuff like that, I do my best to keep one eye partially open. I do not know why. Is this a rational fear that I just know something is going to be standing there looking at me? Or when I open my eyes, it just disappeared, but it was there when I had my eyes closed. Um, another thing is a cracked uh, closet will start opening itself by itself at any given time as soon as I get comfortable in my bed or on the couch. Walking up the stairs at night, looking back over my shoulder down at the bottom of the stairs, I am convinced something is going to be standing there waiting to walk up the stairs at me. Um, I could keep going, but I'll leave you with those three. This is why horror movies are so effective for me as like, it's not so much like seeing Bagul or anything like that there. It's my mind creating this like, the moment you're not looking or the moment you lower your guard for this stuff, that's when that shit's there. Like that shit can strike. And I don't believe in it in a general sense, but like, man, that hits me every time. Like I will start walking faster. I will get the chills. I mean, it's so weird, but, um, and it's like super rare, but like even to this day, man, that stuff still gets me. Wow. Well, Garrett, you're, you're as old as you are carrying this with you. I guess you're going to keep doing it until the day you pass on. Maybe hopefully you have both eyes open. <laughs> I would love to be eighty. I'd love to be eighty-five in the shower and be like, "Not gonna do it, you sons of bitches! You didn't get me yet. <laughs> Not so. today, demon." <laughs> well, listeners, do you have any weird quirks like Garrett, or are you like me and you don't give a shit about that stuff? Let us know on our social media. We got a Twitter, a Facebook, and an Instagram account. Hit us up. You can also email us at gravetalkpodcast at icloud.com. If you have any recommendations for movies. Uh, let us know. We're always interested to get some things that you guys want our opinions on out there. Garrett, what are we looking at for next time? Well, Mark, I'm glad you asked because our next episode is going to be the late 90s comedy slash horror classic. I mean, classic in air quotes, uh, Idle Hands. 
starring Devin Sawa and um, Jessica Alba. Okay. Yeah, this one is also a listener request. Uh, listener Chris, this one's for you, man. You've been waiting for a while, so we'll finally get to it. All right. Unless you gentlemen have anything else to say about Sinister, that's going to do it this week. And everybody, please tune in and you can check to see what we're up to on thegravetalk.com. If you guys have a chance, uh, go ahead and uh, on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen to us, go ahead and give us a, a rating and a, uh, a review. Uh, positive, negative. We prefer the positive ones, but um, that does actually help us out and uh, allows us to get to a, a wider audience. So if you got the time, we'd greatly appreciate that. Stay safe out there and we'll see you next time. <laughs>